You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you are walking through the mountains of Peru, you will find a desert that will feel like a completely alien landscape. There really aren't any trees, any bushes, anything that's alive at all. Just a flat, massive expanse, like being on the surface of Mars, but without the red color. And if you walk through that desert long enough, you will come to a track like this. And if you decide to follow that track, and if you walk long enough, you'll find that it goes and goes and goes and goes, and eventually it'll bend, or it'll loop, or it'll curve. And then it will go and go and go and go for a very long time until it bends or loops again. And if you walk long enough, you'll begin to realize that you are walking some kind of pattern, some kind of shape, some kind of image. But it'll be really difficult to figure out what it is because you're at ground level. You almost want to be riding in an airplane. And if you did manage to get up into an airplane, you'd find something like this. These are called the Nazca lines. They were created by ancient peoples in the 400s, maybe the 600s AD. Some people think even earlier. They've been around a very long time. These massive shapes in the desert. They cover roughly 20 square miles in this desert range in Peru. And there are many questions. Why were they created? How do they symbolize something? They're attempted to communicate. Nobody really knows the purpose of these things. And why is this guy waving? Uh, he's not really waving, by the way. I just think that's funny. Um, but one of the many questions that people have is, how did you build something like this at ground level with no possibility of getting a view of the bigger picture? How do you build while always keeping the bigger picture in mind? And you'll have that same question as we read through the book of Nehemiah today. Uh, would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2? We're going to be at verse 1. We're continuing in a series called Hashtag Here, Now, Us, because there's an urgency to this book. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to stop, and then we're going to come back to this. So leave a finger or a bookmark in it. Nehemiah 2, starting at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was served to him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen was also sitting with him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date 
Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, the governors, the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates and the temple fortress and the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, and the gracious hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll stop there. So when we last left the story, Nehemiah was upset, anxious maybe, because he's realized that he's living a life of privilege and comfort while everybody else is in a miserable, unjust situation, living like animals among the ruins of Jerusalem. And he starts praying. And he's asking God that he would kind of help him or direct him or give him some sign of what he's supposed to do. And he's still praying and it's been months. It was December, maybe November, when we were last reading. Now it's May, it's March or April. It's, it's much later. Four months or so have gone by. And nothing has happened. And so Nehemiah is kind of stewing on this and thinking about this. And he has a horrible poker face. And the king of Persia notices it. And if you were the king of Persia, you would notice it too. Because Nehemiah's job is to be the head of the secret service, but also a member of the king's cabinet and also his bartender. It's a very weird position, but this is the ancient world and it's just a different game. And so Nehemiah pours the drinks for the king and the king of Persia knows that a lot of the time, other kings of Persia have died at relatively young ages because it was pretty easy to poison them. That's a good way to have a coup and become king yourself. And so when you have the guy who you trust more than anybody else, because he tastes your drinks before you taste your drinks, and something seems a little off, you would immediately lock in to that body language. You're going to pay very close attention to his emotional state and his facial expressions. You're going to have studied him all the time, but now something seems wrong and you're thinking, is he queasy? Is he, is that, I don't want to be queasy. Um, what's going on? What's going on with him? And all of a sudden he starts calling out Nehemiah and he says, hey, your face is not good. It, things see what you do not seem like yourself. Is this, are you sick? You're not sick. You're not, you're not sick, right? That's, that's not what's going on here. You're, this is like a, this brokenheartedness, right? You, there's some girl problem or something. And there's this long pause. And Nehemiah says, oh, king, live forever. It's, it's that I'm thinking about my people and, and my ancestors and, and the city that lies in ruins. Huh. Wonderful. That's great news. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad to hear that you're okay, that you're not feeling sick. That's, that's oh, your health and your happiness is all I'm worried about. Oh my gosh. That's wonderful news. Um, yeah. What do you need? What's, how long is this going to take? What's, what's going on? When will you be back? But from Nehemiah's perspective, this is a very different conversation. From Nehemiah's perspective, this is a terrifying conversation with the king of the world. And the king of the world is someone you don't really want to annoy. So he's been thinking and wondering about this and wondering if God will give him a sign and also not really sure if this is really the right time to do something or to say something or when the right time is. And he's still thinking about it. And he's thinking, I'm going to have to eventually shut up. I have to put up or I have to shut up. I can't say that I care about this injustice and I can't keep praying and, and, do, and then living my life of luxury. Like I'm going to have to to do something and take a risk 
or I'm just going to have to acknowledge that I'm a self-absorbed person and I don't care about all these people who are dealing with all this injustice. They're going to be sad and I'm going to be happy and that's just the way that it is. And so he's thinking about all of this when the king just calls him out. And he says in, in verse 3 and verse 4, I was very much afraid. And he should be. It is a terrifying thing to do something great. If you're ever going to do anything significant, it will involve risk, it will involve pain, it will involve hard work. Ask anyone who's ever accomplished anything of note, they would all say the same thing. It wasn't easy. There were a lot of sleepless nights. I had to work really hard for this. This, this was really difficult. And those who followed Jesus along the way would say, yeah, it's, honestly, we were frequently just on our knees praying because we knew if God didn't show up, we would be lost. One of the ways to know, right, one of the ways to get a sense of the big picture when you're living at ground level is to realize there's this opportunity in front of you that's risky. An opportunity in front of you that's risky. And I've known lots of people over the years who have seen that and taken it. People who've said, man, foster children, that's going to be hard. And they bring them into their house. And it is hard. It's a big risk. You have to give something up. Folks who have lived really comfortable, cushy lives, who've realized that there's this nonprofit over here that, that really needs help. And so they step away from a decent income and from life and security, and they go and they work really hard for a long time because, well, that's what God is calling them to do. I've known folks who live in relative comfort and security who realize the privilege and the power that comes with it, and they use that really well. While other people they know are buying third or fourth houses, other people they know are touring the world, these people say, how do I use my resources for the kingdom of God? I've known teachers who are relatively secure, living with decent jobs in a good school district, who realize that there's a low-income school district just down the way. And if they wanted to bring all of their skills and all of their gifting to an environment where, you know, parents don't care about kids and where the school district really doesn't have a lot of money and where there's just not going to be a whole lot of engagement, and they suddenly start to think, you know, I think God is calling me to this. And he's calling me to step into this environment that I might raise up a new generation of kids, and that's risky and it's going to be hard. But I, I get the sense that that's what God is doing in this moment. Nehemiah is just living his life when all of a sudden the king of the world says, so what's going on? And he tells him. And the king says, so what do you want to do? And that's when Nehemiah prays. And prays. And prays. All of a sudden in that moment, right, it's just a quick prayer to God. But really, we know he's been praying for months about this. This isn't just a one-time thing. He's been thinking about what God might be calling him to do. And it is a risky situation. The best case scenario is that the king fires him, and he lives penniless because no one will ever hire him again. Because if you make the king of Persia mad, that's, that's the situation. The worst case scenario is he dies a slow, painful death. Because the Persians are pretty good at torturing people they don't like. And then the middle ground is he dies a quick, painful death or prison. Because Nehemiah basically has to say, at some level, you're not running your empire well. These people that you don't care about, who are being governed by people you're managing, are being governed badly. So you're doing a bad job, and the people you've appointed and managed are doing a bad job. And by the way, they recently decided to rebuild. You were okay with it, then you said no, and I'm asking you to contradict yourself and change your mind. This is a, a big risk and a big gamble. And so before Nehemiah answers the king, he starts talking to the king, the God of the universe, trying to figure out what exactly 
do you want me to do in this moment? One of the ways you can get a sense of the big picture, pray. Talk to the God of the universe and see what he might do or what he might say. I love the book of Nehemiah because it's sneakier than other books of the Bible. If you read the book of Exodus, you always know what God's eye view of the story is going on. You always know what the 50,000 foot view of the story is because God will tell you. Watch me light up Pharaoh with some frogs. Watch me part this sea. Watch me, well, do damage to your enemies. Watch me rain bread out of the sky. Watch me turn that bush on fire. Watch me turn it off. Amazing. In the book of Nehemiah, it's a lot more like your normal experience and my normal experience. Where we say, well, I'm not really sure what to do, but I know God's calling me to do something. I see this risky opportunity in front of me. I'm praying a lot. I just, I feel like I might need to make a move right now. Is, is now the time? I'm not sure what to do. Nehemiah is having the same experience that you have on a regular basis when you're trying to figure out what it's like to follow Jesus. There's a pastor named Mark Batterson who talks about this and he says, I, it's been my experience that signs, miracles, follow decisions. And that it's not often that God just gives you a neon sign, right, about what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to marry or what the next step in your life is. Do you tie your left shoe before your right shoe? That kind of thing. It's more that you start moving and then God starts moving. Sometimes you start moving and you realize God's already been moving and you're actually moving in the wrong direction. Because the way you overcome spiritual inertia and produce spiritual momentum is by making tough decisions. And the tougher the decision, the more potential momentum it will produce. The primary reason most of us don't see God moving is simply because we are not moving. If you want to see God move, you need to make a move. Because at one point, we needed a drummer in our church. And we knew that we needed a drummer, and we had nobody to drum. He said, I, I knew that would take some kind of risk for me, and so I bought a drum set for $400. If we ever had a drummer, we would need a drum set. I bought it on Thursday. Sunday, our first drummer showed up. And he was good. He was part of the U.S. Marine Corps band. He was amazing. And that doesn't mean that God always answers our prayers in three minutes or three hours or three days. But there's something to be said for praying and waiting with expectation to see what God will do, making moves and seeing if doors open and starting to pay attention to how God might be moving in the world around you. Now, we've talked from time to time about the prosperity gospel and how that's just no good. Uh, the idea that, well, if you ask God for something, he acts like a genie and he just he gives you everything you want whenever you ask in the right ways. So it's just not true. And yet at the same time, we know that God really does answer prayers and really does do amazing, powerful things in the world. If we're looking for them and if we're expecting them, we'll see God do remarkable things. We'll see his spirit move in remarkable ways. I have known people routinely who've taken huge risks for the gospel and have wondered how they're going to buy groceries six months in. And they've just prayed about it because they don't know what else to do. And at their back door, they will hear a knock while they're praying. And when they're done praying, they go outside and see grocery bags and then several hundred dollars in cash tucked away in one of the bags. No one takes responsibility. They didn't tell anybody they were in need. It just sort of happens. I've known people who've been given cars, not Lamborghinis, but a $400 car that will get you from A to B. Like that's Sometimes God just does amazing things. You notice, there's an old Christian joke, you notice that when you pray, there are more coincidences. The more often you pray, the more coincidences there tend to be, and that's really what we should expect. I'm actually the product of one of those amazing coincidences. Uh, my mom, many years ago, was working at a church, and she was 
kind of tired of doing a lot of the work she was doing alone and she was kind of tired of being single. And so she was talking to some friends about this. She had some good Christian girls in her life who loved her, some of whom were married and wise. And, and they just would talk regularly, which by the way, is a good thing to bring into your life. She was like, I just feel like God might be doing something and he might, but I don't know what it is. And so they started praying a lot and they, they came up with a list. These are the sorts of things you need in somebody who works with you. This will compliment you, this is the stuff you, the holes in you that you need help with. And these are some of the things that you might need in somebody that you were dating because they knew her really well and they cared about her. They made two lists and they just started praying about the lists. It wasn't eye color, by the way, it was personality traits and who they were and the kind of faith that they had. A couple of days later, after praying over the lists, my mom goes to a meeting that is terrible, at a completely different church, a guy's running it, it's just awful. Nothing good happens in the course of the meeting. And she's walking out thinking, that was hours of my life, I'm not getting back. I just can't believe what a waste of time that was. I can't believe how naive those people are. She's thinking all these things and she heads to her car and like a minute after she walks out of the building, she hears a door open with a slam, just really loud. And she turns around and there's this guy walking out and he says, that was just the worst meeting I've ever been to in my life. That's out loud, loudly in a parking lot. That is time I'm never getting back. I can't believe how naive those people are. He's saying everything that she's thinking in that moment. And gets a little closer because they're parked next to each other. And they say hi to each other and she's about to drive away and he starts talking about how there's just this church he's been looking to be a part of. And he, he can't seem to find it. And he says, look, this is the kind of person I am. This is the kind of stuff I like to do. This is the kind of church I'm looking for. This is the kind of ministry I want to get involved in. And he is literally ticking things off the list. And he ends by saying, do you know a church I could get involved in like that? Yeah, I do. And as he got more involved in the church and really was the kind of person they've been praying about, it turned out he was the other kind of person as well. It was unbelievable what God did. I am literally the result of people realizing that God is calling them to do something, trying to figure out what that looks like at ground level. But when you look backward, all those coincidences line up and you start to see a little bit more of the bigger picture. That's what reading the book of Nehemiah is like. And so he can say in verse 8, the hand of my God was gracious with me. Because initially this story looks like Nehemiah is going to get in trouble and Pretty quickly you realize the Persian king is only asking questions. He's acting like he works for Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is really stressed and anxious about this conversation. And the king goes, so what's going on with you? So what do you need? So how long are you going to be gone? When are you going to be back? And that's it. He's acting as though Nehemiah is in charge. And believe me, Nehemiah is nowhere near in charge. This guy is the king of the world, and suddenly he's acting like Nehemiah is someone he needs to do a favor for. And so by the end of the conversation, he gets really, really bold, and Nehemiah just starts saying, and, you know, could you also give me soldiers to come with me, an armed guard? And could you, I don't know, write letters of recommendation to me to all of the governors in the area, officially signing off on this and putting it in writing that you're on board with this decision? Could you functionally make me the governor of this whole part of the world? And by the way, would you mind paying for the entire project? Would you talk to the guy in charge of the king's forest and, you know, tell him to give us all the lumber for the gates, the fortress, all the buildings we're going to build, and my own house? Sure, says the king. And the hand of my God was gracious upon me. How do you know when, when you're a part of the bigger picture? Well, you get a sense that God is calling you to take a risk, and it might be a big risk. And I, I don't want to minimize that and say, well, it, 
it won't cost you anything. It will cost you things. There will be huge obstacles in your path. God might be calling you to take a risk. That's, that's one of the ways. Another way is you notice that the more moves you take, the more risks you seem to get involved in, the more God seems to be backing you up. The more coincidences seem to be happening. And that's why, actually, some of the people I know in my life who I really respect, they would say, if you want to test your faith, if you want to find out if you really want to believe in God, if you want to actually grow your faith and believe in God more, take some risks. The kind of risks that bring you to your knees, that genuinely, without God's help, you will fail, without something miraculous happening in your life, you'll know. You'll absolutely know that God was with you because there's no other way you would have made it. Take some risks that bring you to your knees, and you will see, actually, that God can do great things with people who are willing to step out in faith like that. So Nehemiah sees that God is with him, and the story picks up at verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard of this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. We're not going to talk about these guys today, but just they're, they're tools. They're horrible human beings. You're not going to like them at all, and they're going to be a real problem in the story. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went up by night by the valley gates, past the dragon spring and the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down, its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest that were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So we come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them the hand of my God had been gracious to me and also the words the king had spoken to me. And then they said, let's start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. Stop there. So Nehemiah is on this journey. By the way, it takes him several months to get there. Four months later or so, it's probably been nearly a year, actually, since he initially heard the bad news from his brother. He gets to Jerusalem and he arrives in style. I mean, he is riding on horses. He has people with chariots. There are folks carrying the standards of the king. There's gleaming armor, there's cavalry, there's officers. This is a really important move from a really important king. And everyone's kind of wondering what's going on. And then Nehemiah just sort of stays quiet. He doesn't tell anyone what God has put into his heart because he's still trying to figure it out. He's still figuring out exactly what it is that God is telling him to do, exactly what this is going to look like, because this project is clearly huge. And Nehemiah is not a naive optimist. Right? He doesn't come from Persia and say, well, I've got money and I've got power and I can solve all these problems. No problem. Nor is he a pessimist who sees the, the destruction of Jerusalem and can't imagine any way forward. So what he does is he stays kind of quiet about what he thinks that God might be doing, sort of testing this stuff and holding it close for the moment. And he decides to take a sneaky tour of the city. So at night, he doesn't tell anyone what he's going to do. He just starts walking 
with a donkey and a couple of guys he trusts. And they go counterclockwise around the ruins of Jerusalem. And they see things he's heard about when he was a kid. This is his first time ever seeing Jerusalem. He grew up in captivity. He's heard about Jerusalem from his uncles and his grandparents, how it was this gleaming city, a place that called you home with silver trumpets, how the temple of God stood there with gold and the beautiful palace that Solomon had built. He's going to landmarks that everyone's talked about, and there are ruins and rubble on the ground. He sees the dragon gate, the dung gate. He sees pools that used to run clear and beautiful, now soiled and destroyed. He sees the bones of his people. When he was talking earlier to the king of Persia about the ancestors' graves, the Persians knew that the Babylonians who burned the city were brutal people. It's a really realistic thing to say our graves are in disgrace. And so as he walks around, he may be seeing the bones of children and men and women, people who are massacred by the Babylonians. This is a horrible sight to see. The devastation would be overwhelming. But Nehemiah doesn't cry. He doesn't say, God, how are we going to do this? He just seems to have this cold, calculating eye of a surgeon seeing a wound for the first time or an accountant who says, wow, these books are really bad. Or a military officer looking at the size of the problem in front of him. He's just sort of taking it all in. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, when he meets people in the morning, when he brings this kind of group together and starts talking about his vision for the city and what God has put into his heart to do. He seems absolutely confident that they can rebuild. Look how bad it is, he says. Let's start rebuilding. Another way you can know if God has called you into this bigger picture, even though you're at ground level, is you start to have a vision beyond the present moment. You start to be able to see beyond the present circumstances and you begin to believe in hope that God could do something greater than what you see in front of you, that what looks impossible in front of you is actually something that God is about to do something miraculous with. This is something we see time and time again in the Bible, but the truth is if you know any old Christians, they'll say, I've seen that time and time again in my life. Time and time again in my life. And that's a really important thing for us to hear because we live in a time where people are good at seeing the problems in front of us. It's a very pessimistic age we live in. We've been taught to think critically, which is great. Critical thinking is amazing. I learned it in school. You probably learned it in school. Some of you as teachers are learning to teach critical thinking in school. It's great. And critical thinking is a way of looking at the world where you're constantly kind of evaluating the lens through which other people are telling you their stories. So if you read a history book and you hear about how America won the West, you'd say, okay, but that's the story as told by the people who won. What parts of the story are they leaving out? What issues in the story are they kind of overlooking? What, what places are they kind of whitewashing and making look better than they actually were? And we've learned to kind of do this with everything, to kind of demythologize every story we hear, everything that's happening, any vision that people put in front of us. It's like we've been taught to drive a bulldozer around, pushing the landscape of, of bad ideas, clearing things away. And that's great. But the point of driving a bulldozer and clearing a landscape is so that you would begin to build again. And that's the problem. We've only learned to think critically in our time, and no one is teaching us to think constructively. 
You have to learn to think constructively if you ever want to build something, if you ever want to lead, if you ever want to do something great for the kingdom of God, or really just in your own life in general. You have to learn to think constructively. And our culture has a lot of trouble doing that. There's a, a philosopher and a theologian I, I really like named R.R. Reno. And he says, it's like what we've been taught to do is go to a train station. If life were like a train station, what, what schools are teaching us to do and what the culture around us is teaching us to do is to avoid the wrong train, which is great. It should definitely be your goal at a train station to not get on the wrong train. But the problem is we're so paralyzed by finding the wrong train that we never get on any train at all. And that also is the point of going to the train station, not just to avoid the wrong trains, but to get on the right one, to learn to commit in that way, to a way of learning that involves faith and hope. In other times when people saw problems in society, they saw that as, as kind of a challenge, a, a time to move forward, a time for me to step up and lead, a time for you to step up and build, a time for us to get together and move. But in our time, we seem to just sort of be content by identifying problems. And you've seen it everywhere, right? There are an unenviable number of pastors who in sermons have said something that blows up the Twitter world and blows up the Christian blogosphere and everyone has something to say about how it's wrong or some song that some musician has done and, and why that's particularly offensive or something that some politician does left or right and why they shouldn't be doing it. The Occupy Wall Street movement, I think, is really indicative of this. And I don't think it's particularly controversial to say that it was a movement that had lots of power and did nothing with it. In 2008, when the financial crisis was hitting, there were all sorts of people who looked like you and who looked like me, and they came to Wall Street and they just camped out. They started blocking traffic and causing problems and protesting. And everyone agreed with them. There were lots of folks on the right and the left who said, yeah, so what exactly do you think we should do? There were lots of folks in the media, left and right, who said, yeah, what do you think that we should do? They came and they covered the situation. They had lots of sympathetic attention. And there was no one willing to lead. There was no one willing to say anything, really, at all. Because they all sort of knew that anyone who stands up and says, this is the way forward, would be ripped apart by their other protesters. Anyone who said, this is the way we should go, someone would say, well, that's not perfect for these six reasons. Well, these are the issues with what you're doing. Well, this is why that's a particularly dangerous way of looking at the world. And so no one was willing to step up and say anything. And that, I think, is the climate we live in, where politicians left and right have trouble saying or doing anything. And it's why fewer and fewer wise people even want those kinds of jobs. Because it's really a, an ego exercise. It's really something to do if you're, if you're the kind of person who doesn't really care what other people think. It's not something where you go and you work together and you build something together. We need to be a different kind of people, you and I. People who are committed, this says, to the common good, committed to working with one another, committed, actually, to the world in which we live. Can we learn to love the world enough that we want to change it and yet see problems in the world that we want to change? Can we do both of those things at the same time, not be either optimists or pessimists, but people who are committed to building and rebuilding? Because we live in a time where the world is ruined. COVID definitely is destroying all sorts of things around us. The racial tension around seriously destroying us. Those of us who have seen kind of the way that people can't talk to each other in the world. There's, there's ruins all around us, but in many ways, these aren't new things. These are just symptoms of an existing problem. But we don't know how to think constructively. And you and I, as the church, we are called to rebuild. 
let's rebuild together, Nehemiah. After seeing just how bad the problem is, after seeing just how dangerous the situation is, just how impossible it all looks. He comes and he says, let's rebuild. And all these people who have lived there for years, who have seen the same problem, suddenly catch the same vision. I mean, who is Nehemiah? This guy who's never lived here, who's been here for a few days, who's seen the city. And somehow there's something in him and, and the way he talks and the way he talks about what God has put in his heart. And the way he says, look, this is what the king has said and this is what I've seen and, and this is what I think God is calling us to do and I think this is the way forward. And people say, yeah, let's do that. Let's work together. And you, God is calling you today to do something. And I think some of you probably already know this. You've been feeling it for a long time and you've been thinking and wrestling with stuff like this. Like, I know that I'm called to, to make some kind of impact on the world. I see at ground level, but I know there's a bigger picture and I know that there's real injustice around us and I know there's some real hardship around us and I know that God is calling me to do something. I'm just not sure what it is yet. The question is whether we'll be bold enough to make those moves, whether we will read this book and start living this way. There's an old G.K. Chesterton quote from a book that he wrote and he says this, the point is not that the world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving it. And its sadness is a reason for loving it more. Can a person hate it enough to change the world? Can he love the world enough to think it worth changing? Is he enough of a pagan to die for the world and enough of a Christian to die to it? Can we love the world enough to want to change it? Can we hate the world enough to see that it needs changing? Can we love the church enough to change it? Can we hate the church enough to see that it needs changing? Can we be people who are absolutely committed neither to being optimists nor pessimists, but people who are willing to build? To build in this time where we need builders. Not anyone else who's going to throw stones and tear things down. People are going to build community and work together and commit themselves to the common good in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are called to build in light of the big picture. And it's hard to do, but Nehemiah's story can lead us in that way here, now, us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you.